Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We've seen a rise in secondary share sales for successful venture capital companies, but what about those doing less well? Rufus Pearl has come up with an interesting scheme that expands investor options to realize loss relief and roll companies into a larger fund. We talk about the background and how it works. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, either directly or following the link in the show notes. If you have any, any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us inquiries at harmanco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Rufus Pearl, who is founder of Plan D. Welcome to the podcast, Rufus. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. As usual, we want to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in the world of venture capital? Sure. So I've always been involved in early started off with pre-IPO companies, taking them public on a junior market mm-hmm. and transitioned into the venture space about 10 years ago, working with uh, startups. During lockdown, I was uh, consulting with uh, a couple of really exciting venture-backed companies. And after working out how to extend runway and, and raise money where possible, we were sitting on our hands uh, as everyone was freaking out, not knowing what uh, what was coming next. And I didn't feel comfortable charging a retainer when we weren't actually doing any work. And so I, as difficult as it was for me at the time, I hit pause uh, for three months. And for the first time in a long time had the ability to sit back and, uh, and, and think about an idea that I'd had in a, in, in a long time ago. And I reached out to as many of the smart people in venture that I knew uh, to have a conversation about this idea, uh, Plan D. And out of about 50 conversations, 30 of them said that not only did they like it, but they would like to help me um, fund it and get it off the ground. And so I effectively had no choice but to uh, follow through with it and uh, launched Plan D uh, in the beginning of 2021. Okay, so we're going to get into the details of Plan D later on. Do you want to give us the 30 seconds of what Plan D actually is? So that'll set some context for what we're doing. Sure. So we help angels and founders when things don't go according to plan. And this is traditionally a time when other stakeholders are very deliberately looking the other way. And if 80% of startups fail to achieve what they set out to do, we believe that that is uh, the majority of the market massively overlooked at one point in time. Our launch product is Exit via Diversification, which helps to, which aims to help recycle capital currently tied up in these underperforming investments. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll come back to how how are you doing that and how that's actually going to work in practice and and some of the challenges to that. But it's probably worth setting the scene because, in essence, you're starting from the perspective of there is an issue about secondary sales in the venture capital market. Do you want to articulate what a secondary sale is and how, or start talking about how that is hard to achieve or why it's hard to achieve? Sure. So the most common share issue, uh, the one that we all know about is a primary issue, which is when a company is issuing new shares for cash, what we call a fundraise. But a secondary is very simply when existing shares are sold. Yeah. The, the reason secondaries are hard to achieve is that there are no tax incentives for secondaries. And the mindset seems to be very much focused in the UK early stage on the tax break rather than the fundamentals of an investment. Do you think that is a real distortion? Because I've, I've heard this comment about one or two others, even primary funding, if you're trying to get primary funding and the tax reliefs aren't there. Nobody really talks about it, but do you think these tax reliefs distort the market meaningfully? Well, 
at the very least, you have a 30% upfront tax break, or if not 50% for the the seed uh, enterprise investment scheme. And so that is often baked into the valuation. But if you imagine uh, you have a proposition that you think is worth 5 million today, and you're asking an investor from America to to come in, they're paying the 5 million valuation, whereas Mm -hmm. clearly the UK investor is having a 30% discount. So there definitely is is an issue there. I think that the, the, absolutely the, the, the predominant one is the, the lack of tax breaks. But there's also a, a difficulty in uh, uh, information flow. So if you're a founder of a company that is in scale-up mode, you don't really want to be telling everybody about um, you know, the details of your prior funding rounds um, and or um, how, how your business is achieving. And, and that becomes more of an issue as you start to scale and get more uh, into the market. You don't want your competitors knowing what's going on. There are some mm-hmm. amazing secondary market platforms out there that provide a really good service. But the other thing is that the very best deals will never hit a platform because Uh if you are an investor in uh, a top-tier rocket ship venture-backed company uh, and there happens to be one or two people that need or want to get off that rocket ship, the likelihood is is that the insiders will take up their preemption. And so those shares will never hit a platform. Uh Yeah, it seems to me... One of the things I've been aware of over, probably over the last five years is that the number of secondary sales ha- generally has risen within the market. I think most of those are, tend to be part of later funding rounds where you get venture capitalists coming in, probably wanting to invest more than they can get in their pri- in, the, in that primary issue and going to angels or long-standing shareholders saying, we're, we're interested in a few more shares, are you willing to sell yours? And, and that that gets a sort of secondary exit. I think there's very few secondary sales where someone sort of like goes to the company and says, "Yeah, I I want to sell them. I want to sell my shares. Do you know a buyer?" Most most individuals don't realise that they do have the ability to phone the founder up and say, "Hey, I'd like to sell. Can do you know any buyers?" Um, and so that's one of the other issues. You do have um, well, obviously- I think there's a presumption that there's no liquidity as well. <laughs> That that is the case, but the reality is, is that, that um, the liquidity is usually there for the best companies. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem also is that there aren't enough really good companies out there. So it tends to be the companies that are not doing particularly well that people want to get out of, and that's a problem too. And when you say not doing particularly well, is that that there's a range of sins in there? In a sense, you know, you you, you talked about that top twenty percent. There's probably another twenty thirty percent that are. Decent companies, perhaps not growing as well as you know targeted or more like you know there's another i don't know twenty percent that are maybe more in the lifestyle category, and there's maybe another th- i'm picking these numbers thirty percent that are baskets basket cases and and then will probably fail don't don't quote those figures back to me anybody but but that that gives a sense of sort of you know the the sort of range of things that we have. Absolutely, yeah, and and the reality is that exits are, um, you know, almost more uh, like mythical creatures than unicorns themselves. It's very easy to get into a, a deal, um, but it's very very difficult to uh, to get any form of, of exit. And uh-huh. so, all these new platforms out there that do provide uh, liquidity are, are welcome. Uh-huh. And how successful do you think these platforms are being? 
Well, I don't know many of them that are shouting uh, too loudly uh, with you know specific numbers, mm-hmm. but uh, Cedars is a, is a high profile one. Theirs uh, tends to focus on companies that have crowdfunded yeah. um, and they have put some numbers out. I've used that platform. It is elegant and it works. But um, as to the sort of bigger ones like CapDesk and so on, I, I haven't um, seen any numbers put out. Um, but as you say, there seems to be a general trend towards more and more uh, secondaries happening, whether that's for founders mm-hmm. uh, that need to take a bit of risk off the table or early investors. Um, and so that's all to the good. Yeah. I mean, in, in I do wonder a little bit, you know, there, there's two or three options out there for sort of marketplaces that are sort of trying to generate these things. What I've seen from quoted markets is that if you sort of diversify the markets, you get a little, little bit of liquidity or reduced liquidity in each, whereas a consolidated market would have greater liquidity. You know, and, and, and I do wonder if that fragmentation... You know, competition is good in terms of generating things, but does fragmentation actually help? Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right there. But in actual fact, uh, liquidity in the junior public markets is not that um, strong either. If you look mm-hmm. at the spreads on the buy and sell, they're, they're, they tend to be quite wide. So it, it is an issue, not just for private companies, but for uh, for the junior public markets as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I know sometimes when I buy and sell stuff on AIM, you get... In my former career as a fund manager or a PA, now you you do suddenly find that you've lost five percent or more more just by Absolutely. sort of buying yeah. or selling. Yeah, and 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 even a small amount of selling for these small companies can actually move markets. So if mm-hmm. you are one of these smaller cap companies and somebody wants to sell a hundred grand's worth, it can move your share price down mm-hmm. by a significant amount because there has to be the buying in order to match the selling to 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 maintain the market at the level that it's at. Yeah, I mean certainly. We, I speak to some of the AIMVCT managers and they talk about the, the sell discipline and the challenges of selling large positions like they have on AIM, where they have to do it slowly over time to try not to move market. You end up with partial exits because share prices are volatile. And that's in markets where ostensibly you have liquidity. Within private markets, it's pre- presumably going to be even worse. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's right. So you spoke about sort of um, lots of capital being locked up. Do you have any stats on sort of you know what what sort of capital is is sort of tied up in private markets? So if we just look at EIS, which is clearly uh, the focus for uh, for your podcast, the the, the stats are, have been announced that twenty seven billion has been invested since the start, uh-huh. and you know you can extrapolate from there using the the, the numbers that that you threw out or, or or anything like it. That even if you just assume that thirty percent of those uh, are in the bucket of worth less than uh, what what they originally were invested at, but not zero, you're talking about close to eight billion. Uh-huh. But that's just looking at EIS and uh, and the UK market, illiquidity in the private space is not just the preserve of, of the UK and EIS. It is it is a global problem, and it compounds year on year. The amount of money going into early stage is is eye watering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I certainly we've had this thing about companies staying private for longer. The US, where perhaps there's you know they've they've got attempts at secondary markets as well, and they've probably got more bigger companies. That are private, which which may well help. 
Yeah, uh, there is a vibrant secondary market in the U- in the US, uh, and they're ahead of us on on all, all of this kind of stuff. But it is the preserve of companies that are worth several hundred million and above. They haven't tracked the market for um, liquidity in the earlier stage scale up companies uh, where uh, where we're, what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 in terms of the statistic, yeah, what's your feeling for what proportion will get to exit? What proportion will fail what proportion will be viable companies but somewhere in the middle if i knew the answer to all of those questions i'd be a very uh, popular man <laughs> because it's very difficult to uh, to put those kind of numbers on things and mm-hmm. um i guess there there was a um a, a report put out recently by bohurst um that was very interesting i'm not sure if you saw it it was called startup fail scale and exit rates in the uk and they looked at seed stage companies in some form of scale up mode and albeit uh, they were looking at companies within 5 years of starting out but only 2% had exited 20% failed 25% in the scale uh, uh, section but over 50% were in the stagnation zone so mm-hmm. that's that's the that's the bit that we're looking at mm-hmm. so those and that's not just EIS that's all private companies i think they look at that have raised money yeah, so I think that the the the, uh, the criteria for uh, for this was companies that had raised money and were in some form of scale up based on their criteria okay so scale up presumably is companies that are getting further funding and and showing signs of growth and revenues. Yes. One of the challenges it seems to me for investor is that um, the attractions of companies will vary. So if you've got something company that is growing at, in some sense, growth and attracting capital to fund that growth is is a virtuous circle where you have companies that are growing because they're growing, they can attract capital. Because they can attract capital, they can fund further growth. Once you get out of that, it's it's a lot harder. And you know, if 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 an investor is saying, "Well, I've got a choice of private company that's growing or one that's maybe stagnating a bit," value investors are not very common in this sector to people, you know, and probably for good reason. How, how do you sort of think about companies that are not in in that sort of fast growth sort of stream? So the whole venture uh, industry is predicated on unicorn um, uh, exits, um, and that's what all this money is piling into. But achieving a unicorn status is predicated on on institutional money because you cannot get to that status uh, without raising sufficient capital, which takes you outside the realms of just angel investors. Part of the problem then is, is that the angel investors end up at the very bottom, having taken the biggest risk right at the start, end up at the bottom of the press stack uh, because as the company gets bigger and bigger and needs more and more money to continue to sustain growth before it gets to the point where it's uh, profitable and attractive for some form of exit, the money that's coming in uh, dictates terms. And so there is sort of a growing uh, sort of interest from angels in companies that have a more reasonable um, exit outcome, uh, because a lot of good companies end up failing because they, they're pushed too hard. And that that is a genuine problem. Mm-hmm. And but that do you, is that mean the sort of the weight of capital kind of forces people into growth patterns that otherwise they might not be forced to do. So you know, if you've got to venture capital, might expect you to do fifty percent or one hundred percent growth a year, which is really really might be hard for companies where twenty or twenty five percent of growth might be more achievable. 
Yeah, I, I think that um, um, the American mindset is very much uh, more swing for the fences um, uh, 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 than, than it is here in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a little bit more uh, traditional in our understanding of uh, actually making money. But there there is still a lot of uh, venture capital money that's throw, thrown at companies uh, that are told to grow at all costs. And whilst money is freely available, that's fine. Uh, but the problem is, is that if you're a founder of a company that sweat, sweat blood and tears over a number of years, hit the milestones that you've been told to hit to get to the next funding round and the market's changed, the investors are going to turn around and say, yeah, we told you you needed to get to 50 grand a month, uh, but now the goalposts have changed and it's 100. And if you're not there and you can't raise the money, you're stuck because you're losing money and you can't sustain uh, that that um, that business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's kind of interesting at the moment because we're seeing a lot more, we are seeing a change of emphasis where people are sort of not quite run for cash, but run. I think my last guest talked about running, running for survive, where you're saying, well, okay, growth perhaps less important. What's more important is that you you don't start, you don't burn cash at the same rate. Default alive. Yeah, I heard that, and I've heard that. I've heard that a lot, but that's not exactly uh, uh, sexy for an investor to, uh, to to put money into a company that's looking to go default alive. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that valuations are being looked at, um, but you know, a lot of exciting um, uh, big companies uh, are, um, are born in in difficult times. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's still a lot of, uh, of of value out there, but in the early stage, you're 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 buying into the vision of the founder, and it, it doesn't matter what the market looks like today, so long as you can continue to fund the business through to um, where you want it to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've just been reviewing an, another fund, and they've got a sort of almost a resuscitation plan. So if they they think you know most companies go through a near death experience. And they've got this plan. So when they're in that near death experience, this is how they recover. Presumably, in that uh, sort of segment of companies you're speaking about, where you know, where not growth, there are some that will be in that. They could be really good companies with perhaps you know spe- either better support of the management, run in a slightly better way, perhaps some a little bit more capital, but not a huge amount. Yeah, a lot of those founders can get uh, taken advantage of because if you're desperate for cash and uh, your existing investors and or new investors come in and can dictate to you that if you don't take our money on these terms, uh, then tough luck. Um, there are an, a, a sort of never-ending array of interesting opportunities to invest in. So if you have the money, you call the shots. There are very few companies that are so attractive and exciting that they can call the shots, mm-hmm. and that's the best position to be in. Um, but we're seeing a lot of um, angel investors and, uh, I guess, uh, uh, venture money going into existing companies to keep them going. I'm not saying throwing good money after bad, but obviously it makes it harder for new companies to raise money when uh, when the money that is available right now is often going into um, existing investments. So you think that's causing a problem even in the primary market because it's causing a shortage of capital? I think um, there's confirmation bias everywhere you look. And absolutely, mm-hmm. there's a lot of money going into companies that maybe shouldn't have it. But no one can tell until three to five years down the line when that company has either uh, succeeded or not. That's one of the other issues is, is that there's such a long time lag between whether your bet has been proven out to be right or wrong. Mm-hmm. What I was saying earlier was that some of these investors are using it as a as a way to come in at a lower valuation, rightly or wrongly. Um, and and that, that that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're averaging down in a good company, that's a good thing. But if you're averaging down in a company that's, you know, if, you, if you're sort of praying the bridge route, the famous bridge to nowhere, 
it's it's perhaps less good and you know whether angels have the skills some probably do some probably think they do and don't it's it's challenging for them yeah, yeah, absolutely. But like I said, you know, when you when when you um, invest in a company and give it the money to to, to move forward for 12, 18, 24 months, uh, you, you know, there, there's that period of time to, to, to elapse before you're proven right or wrong. So uh-huh. um, these decisions uh, take time. Uh-huh. And loss aversion, I mean, we've, while we're on psychological things, loss aversion is clearly part of this because the willingness of investors to take a loss is not as high as perhaps it should be in this area. You know, yeah. failure is part of the second system, but no one likes talking about it. Um, do you see a lot of that where people investing because they're just scared to actually take the loss and move on? I think that um, there is a bit of that, but also there, there is a bit of a lack of understanding of, of loss relief in of itself. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands the upfront tax breaks you get for investing in EIS, and they understand the tax-free upside, even though it's not that often that you get those exits to take the benefit of the tax-free upside. But loss relief is, is, is widely misunderstood. And, and a part of that is the fact that a lot of these companies take such a long time to actually fail or find some kind of exit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I'm speaking to angel investors, uh, you know, some people know about negligible value claims, but it's been widely misunderstood and also widely abused. Nobody likes going down the pub talking about the companies they've invested in that are doing badly. Mm-hmm. They want to talk about not only the ones that they've invested in that are doing particularly well, uh, but also the, the anti-portfolio, the ones that they missed that they should have invested in. That's much more exciting. Yeah. So you mentioned the negative value rules. Do you want to just briefly say what they are? This is not legal advice, but just to help people's understanding. Not legal or tax advice, but yeah. So um, if a company genuinely is worth negligible value, i.e. zero or close to zero, individual investors can make a claim for negligible value, which means that they can take the right off and they have to prove with documentary evidence that the company is worth zero or next to zero and they can uh, take uh, the the value of the write-off then if some miracle happens down the road and the company does come back they just unwind it but a lot of um, angel investors just tick a box and say oh i've written that one off and i'm claiming negligible value without actually understanding that they need to demonstrate with documentary evidence why they've chosen that and i've been talking to a lot of people that, that understand this way better than I do. And I believe for for good reason, HMRC are cracking down on this because they don't want to give full write-offs when something might not be worth zero or close to zero. So, yeah. So my understanding is that the, the, the easy way is you wait for the company to actually go into bankruptcy, liquidation, whatever. And at that point, it's crystal clear. You can make your claim. And I have seen people saying that's the only way you can claim loss relief, which you know, isn't isn't quite right. You can actually uh, uh, you can actually write a letter to HMRC and uh, and get advance clearance, but it's unlikely that an individual would uh, w- would do that on behalf of themselves for one investment, unless it was a, a large sum of money and they were very sophisticated and knew what they were doing. And, and I do know people that that, that, that mm-hmm. do that. Um, but it might well be that, uh, for example, we're talking to an angel group at the moment that have invested uh, on behalf of uh, a discretionary portfolio uh, into one company, let's say a million pounds investment that's worth fifty thousand today. No and it's not worth negligible value because the company itself is doing uh, some revenue and it has even small profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the general trend for that company is up, not down. And so um, HMRC actually knocked them back and said, no, we don't believe that this is worth negligible value. And and that that's quite right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and in a way, it's, it's a problem because... 
you can end up in a situation where the infamous lifestyle company, which kind of works for the founder or the management, where they can run the company, it's perhaps not going very far, it's got a salary, it's clearly not a zero-value company, but there is no exit option for the investors because there's never going to be any cash generated to, to buy them out. You know, there's probably not a return coming out, so people won't buy the shares from them. What do they do? Well, I mean, <laughs> funny you should ask because <laughs> <laughs> there actually, to my knowledge, isn't really a solution uh, in the market for this right now. And it is a big problem. There are lots of zombie type investments that are not worth zero, but are certainly worth a lot less than where people invested. Mm -hmm. um, right. And there are a lot of companies that have turned into lifestyle businesses. One thing you do know is that all um, angel companies that raise capital, raise on the basis of hope and expectation. Unfortunately, the stats prove out that the majority don't um, grow into that expectation and therefore um, are proven to be worth less than where people invested. And that's a problem because all that money's tied up. Now, unless that or until that company does finally fail and or is proven to be worth zero or close to zero mm -hmm. or someone buys that investment off you, you cannot crystallize your losses. You're just sitting there with a, let's say, a 10 grand investment that's worth a thousand pounds a day, but you can't do anything with it. Yeah, that, that's why we've started Plan D, one of the reasons why we feel like we've got a big opportunity. Okay, so that leads us on uh, naturally to dig into what you're doing at Plan D a little bit more. So you gave the, the elevator pitch at the start. What are you actually planning to do with Plan D? So we have partnered with a fund whose sole purpose in life is to acquire shares in underperforming companies at a price today above at or above which they hope to sell in the future, but that have proven that they are likely worth less than where investors came in and are not venture scale businesses anymore. If a company's come down by 90%, it has to go up by 900% just to break even. If you've given that company three to five years already and all it's done is come down from, uh, you know, let's say a five million valuation to half a million realistically, and they, a lot of these companies don't have the aspiration, let alone capability to 10x or more to get you back in to into profit. So what uh -huh. can you do as an investor? No one in their right mind is going to buy that investment from you because it's proven not to be a venture scale business that's going to 10x or more. There are no tax breaks for secondary. So you as an investor in that company are stuck. And currently, your only uh, solution is to just uh, sit on it and, and hope for the best. Uh -huh. And so the fund that we have partnered with will now acquire that stake at today's fair value, but not for cash, but for on an exchange of shares basis. And that will uh, therefore uh, crystallize your exit. And depending on your own tax advice, if you invested £10,000 into a company and you have exited for £1,000, you will have made a loss of some kind. If, if you took EIS of 30% up front, your loss would be £6,000, and uh, that, that could be valuable to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in terms of what the company's buying, presumably the company is, or the fund isn't just buying any old company here. It presumably has things, criteria for the sort of companies it wants that it considers it can get some sort of return on in the future. I'm guessing. 100%, absolutely, absolutely. So the, the 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 underlying goal of the fund is to acquire shares in companies that are at a price above which they hope to sell them in the future. Now that sounds really simple, um, and and isn't that what all investors uh, are looking for, whether they're angel investors or institutions? But it's very important that that the fund is looking for value and. The simple criteria are: is there a um, is there a management team that's incentivized 
and engaged to move the business forward? And is the business a going concern for the next 12 months? Because if it looks likely that company might be failing in the next six to 12 months, rather than able to continue as a going concern, then the likelihood is, is that those uh, investors will be getting their loss relief with, uh-huh. uh, within uh, a reasonable period of time anyway. So, you know, for example, I'll talk about one particular company, I won't name it. We're talking about a company that has 2 million turnover and, uh, and, and uh, is, is profitable and it's growing at 25% year on year. It is valued at 5 million today, but it was raising money at an 80 million valuation. That company Uh is unlikely to exit at anything more than 20 million in the next five years. Investors who have already been in for five years, even if it did sell for 20 million, are going to receive a massive loss. Why not uh, exit and take your losses today and take shares in the fund, commensurate with the value of your stake in that underlying Uh company, and hope that if other deals that are done within the portfolio are similarly well-valued, that that fund may perform over time. Right. So in some ways, you're not looking at the classic lifestyle business. You're looking for businesses that are in that gap between the lifestyle and the venture scale business. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And but but having said that, if there is a lifestyle business where the founder is just uh, running the business uh, for their own uh, benefit, that is a horrible place to be as an angel investor. Mm-hmm. And if you have uh, if you have um, invested in a company based on a dream that hasn't materialized, I believe there's a moral obligation for the founder to find a solution for you. And we're providing them the opportunity to allow disaffected investors to exit stage left and replace them with a investor who is engaged engaged and potentially can be value add moving forward because uh-huh. on a deal by deal basis we're getting smart connected wealthy individuals who become users of our platform and investors in the fund and may well be able to be value add for those founders um, uh-huh. down the road yeah. and presumably there's an issue of putting deals together a bit here because if i came along with my five thousand pound investment in a company random company you're probably not going to be or the fund's probably not going to be that interested but if there was 50 of us with the same investment, which gives you 5% or 10% of the company, presumably that's more of interest. So the conversation starts with one investor, and it may be someone that put five grand in, or it may be someone that put 50 grand in, or it may be a group that invests mm-hmm. together. As I mentioned earlier on, a, an investment fund that represented a bunch of investors that have put a million quid into mm-hmm. a company. But each conversation starts with a willing seller and us having the fund who is potentially a willing buyer, subject to diligence, subject to pricing. Mm-hmm. And we have a conversation with the with the company. We explain the value proposition from their perspective. And at, at that stage, we then get access to the entire cap table because every shareholder is given the opportunity to exit if they so wish. The fund is only able to take up to a maximum of 25% of any underlying company wouldn't want to take any more. But that is um, one conversation leads to a conversation with the entire cap table, which is brilliant. Uh Okay. And presumably, when the company goes into the fund, it's not just a case of, it sounds like the fund is not going to be a passive investor. It's going to be active, involved and supporting. So we um, are not promising anything other than that the fund will be a supportive shareholder. Uh-huh. If there is an ability for the network to be valuable to the founders within the portfolio in the future, and we do believe there is a way for that to happen, then we will absolutely open up the network and try to incentivize them to help the founders within the portfolio. Now, 
if you're a customer of Plan D and you be, um, become an investor in the fund because you've become disaffected with a particular investment of yours, you've lost interest and or the will and capability to help that company. But that doesn't mean to say that you might not be able to help some of the other founders, so long as they're w- willing to do the work to make whatever product or service it is that they're selling look credible. Mm-hmm. And we can use technology to make it very simple for them to connect mm-hmm. uh, to relevant people that that, that mm-hmm. founder might want to speak to um, and use incentive mm-hmm. as well. Okay, so the benefits of the company are essentially perhaps a more supportive shareholder, perhaps more support, no promises, but, you know, and, and you know, hopefully getting rid of shareholders who, well, not get rid of, but allowing shareholders who are disaffected to, to exit gracefully. I've been involved as a as a founder or an investor or an advisor in many companies, and I can tell you that um, I've seen you know really good returns, really bad returns, and everything in between. And when you go with the best will in the world, you you sell a dream to often friends and family and others, and you sweat blood and tears for a number of years. If you're in a position where things are not turning out the way you hoped, uh-huh. then it is a lonely and not very nice place to be. And the phone has stopped ringing with people offering you help. And when somebody rings up and says. Uh, if the phone does ring, it's probably someone to, to, to say, hey, what's going on with my investment, which is not a nice call to get either. But if we're coming along saying we're offering you the opportunity to at least give your shareholders optionality to move on if they want to and replace them with a supportive shareholder, that in of itself is, is a good first step. Mm-hmm. And the actual fund itself, is this going to be liquid, listed? What, what, what's the plan for this fund? So we, we believe we're at the forefront of innovation on secondaries, albeit looking in entirely the opposite direction to everybody else, down and to the left, not up and to the right. And we are looking at all of the other amazing platforms out there that are providing liquidity in secondary private markets. And at the right time, right in inverted commas, we don't we don't pres- uh, haven't been prescriptive about what that is. But when the fund reaches sufficient size and diversification, it will probably make sense to to close it um, and uh, provide liquidity within that portfolio. But only once it hits sufficient size and diversification, we're fixing uh, a big problem for, uh, for for customers in being able to exit these things and, and, and fixing the majority of their problem, but not all of it. We understand we're, we're giving them, we're taking one illiquid piece of paper and swapping it for another, uh-huh. but uh, in so doing, they're at least uh, crystallizing their exit from, from the first company and creating diversification. Okay, so they get the loss relief or, you know, a fair chunk of the loss relief and touch wood some potential for the future. Exactly. Okay. And how's it going so far? We're very early stage, um, mm-hmm. but we are about to launch deal five and we are really excited. The current economic environment clearly is very um, uh, sort of advantageous to us. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of deal flow out there, should we say, and a lot of angel investors that are wondering what on earth they do with uh, some of their companies that are not transitioning in the way that they want. Mm-hmm. We've got some amazing uh, backers and some amazing early customers and we're really excited about the future. Okay. All sounds promising. All sounds very exciting. You must be very excited about Well, you sound excited by this. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, at my age, uh, you know, to, to leap in with both feet as a founder of a, of a, start, of a tech startup, uh, it, you know, you'd be pretty mad um, if you weren't excited. And, and, and mm. the fact is, is that over the last you know, nearly two years, I've become more and more excited as time has gone on, not less, even though it's really hard work. Mm. But uh, it's, it's fantastic. I'm really excited. And you said... You're working on the fifth deal. That sounds like there's been four deals done already. So some people like this idea. 
clearly. You obviously don't sound like you don't want to give details of individual companies. Do you want to give us an idea about the sort of things that you've done so far? Yeah, so um, very diverse companies, uh, but clearly companies that are down by, on average, 90% from where they last raised money. Mm-hmm. Luckily for us, some of them have, uh, have have done a reorganization or discounted round, which has made pricing very easy. You know, the first two deals have been relatively small in terms of um, original investment value. We're talking in the region of uh, £250,000 at, at, at discounted uh, to the, at today's value. Then the next two deals, around 400 of original mm-hmm. investment value. Mm-hmm. The next two deals are looking like they could be much, much bigger. There's a lot of companies out there that have raised a lot of money that are significantly down. And um, the opportunity is uh, is really, really big. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and these all started that way with one shareholder or a group of shareholders coming to you. And you, did you expand the list of shareholders who were interested? Yes, so it, st- it absolutely starts with one conversation and then uh, and then we get access to the entire cap table. The opportunity for us is in actually educating people about um, what the opportunity is here. Uh, and of course, our uh, conversion rate is just going to continue to go uh, up as people mm-hmm. understand it. We've already had our first repeat customer, which is pretty good, uh, g- given that we're only on deal, deal five. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is inbuilt virality in the mm-hmm. product because there's no reason why someone shouldn't tell their friends that are also in a mm-hmm. given company. Mm-hmm. and uh, and talk uh, you know a lot of angel investors talk amongst themselves which is great for us yeah and and presumably within the fund if you get an exit what happens to that cash is that going to be distributed back to investors uh, how, yeah, so what's the, the yeah, plan with that so, so the fund is a standalone company uh, which is, is set up as an alternative investment fund structure uh, managed by a third-party fund manager. We are the investment advisor. Uh-huh. The company itself is uh, managed by three independent directors, uh, is run by three independent director, de- directors and is simply um, h- there to hold the shares on behalf of our customers. So the f- once a distribution happens and cash comes into the fund, the fees that are accrued to Plan D um, are paid and all of the rest of the money is then distributed in share-running ratio. That'll either be from dividends or buybacks, uh, whatever is the most tax efficient um, in in the future when this happens. Now, a lot of people say, well, if you're taking all sorts of, you know, dross, then, you know, are there going to be any exit events? Well, in actual fact, you know, we've already had one company uh, within the portfolio uh, that is uh, that is potentially uh, going to have an exit at two and a half times uh, where we came in. We've also got a company that's looking on shaky ground. We know that there are going to be companies that fail and there are companies Mm -hmm. that are going to do well. But that's exactly the nature of the space that we're investing in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes, you're going to get the whole range of things. I would imagine within there, you will probably get, you know, every now and then, you if you do enough deals, you're going to get one that's going to be a st- absolute star. And yeah, you're going to get some that are going to be uh, shooting stars that plummet to earth. Absolutely. So that all sounds really good. What I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So we'll we'll throw these at you and, and we'll get your, your thoughts. Usually ask, what was the most recently public announced investment you made? Do you want to answer that? Well, I mean, I, I don't see uh, any reason why I can't. Uh, information will be available at Companies House that um, that, that, that the fund mm. uh, is on the cap table of the company. And uh, it, it's a company called uh, UK Building Products, um, a.k.a. Grip It Fixings, which previously raised money on Crowdcube. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was attractive about it? 
So it actually did a CVA, uh, which is something that a lot of people might not um, know what it is. It's not an administration, but uh, it's close to. Um, and so, as in an administration, uh, the uh, investors would get a would get a would get a write off. But in a CVA, a, a voluntary arrangement, not administration, mm-hmm. there was a, a reorganisation at a 93% discount. So the, the investors got a massive haircut, but weren't able to uh, to take a loss. Mm-hmm. We've offered those that want to the opportunity to crystallise their exit. And move on. And the company was recapitalized at that price. Uh, the guy that's running it is very um, is very engaging and uh, and the company looks like it's it's moving in the right direction. So we're delighted. Okay. So I'll be interested about this this question, this next question. Uh, in the classic VC trend right of market product and management, we'll know they're all important, but which for you is going to be the most important? I would say management all day long. I think uh, you know that, that I would rather have. I'd rather have great management of an average product than an average manager of a of a great product. Okay, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Uh, we had a very painful experience once. My wife and I had started a business uh, from scratch. We we, we put our, our own hard-earned money into it, built it up to a few million in sales. It was a, a it was a really good market-leading product. Uh, it's selling internationally in a, in albeit a small niche. Uh, we sold it to what could have been the right buyer, and we deliberately chose to to sell it on an earnout. Uh, and unfortunately, within 11 months, the earnout completely blew up in our faces, and. Uh, we ended up with, uh, with with absolutely nothing, which was very very painful uh, oh, failure. And uh, I think you know the 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 obvious answer is not that we learned that earnouts don't work, which a lot of people run around that do earnouts that don't work say. Uh, the, the 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 real um, learning was was resilience. When you are hit with such a massive um, issue, you really need to to learn to be resilient. And uh, our family pulled together and, uh, and and moved on from from that low point. Mm-hmm. So the EIS and VCT industry that we work in is fantastic in many ways. What would you like to change about it? Or maybe we already know. I think I think uh, a better understanding of, uh, of of underperformance uh, and loss relief. I think education is key. Uh, there's too much uh, of sort of of a focus on uh, on everything going up and to the right, and the reality is very different. So I think an education on uh, on the wider ups and downs of of the EIS would be uh, would be uh, what I'd like to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it definitely needs a more balanced perspective than just okay, you know because. Y- you you can get a good return with a, with a minority of successful companies, which but that means that you know half or two thirds possibly of your portfolio won't deliver that, and that can be a shock to people uh, if they're not expecting it. Absolutely. So, as podcast listeners know, I'm an avid reader. Is there something out there you like and would recommend? So I uh, read and reread uh, now and again a book. Uh, called The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. And it's it's a little parable uh, that sort of teaches about giving first. And mm-hmm. it's a, a very different approach to selling. And I think that it's a it's something that uh, anyone in sales should read because it puts, uh, it puts the other person first. And uh, it's a, a very different approach. That sounds interesting. I haven't heard of that one before, so I'm, I'm definitely going to go straight to international Amazon. International bestseller. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. <laughs> Do you know how many international bestsellers I've never heard of? Most well, of them. I think on Amazon, you probably need to sell about 150 copies in a niche to be an international bestseller. But anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they'll sell a few more now that you, you, you're plugging it. 
What do you wish you knew when you started Plan D that you know now? I think that I knew this already, but um, I, I deliberately started Plan D as a solo founder, and I knew it would be tough, but I think it was probably even 10 times harder than uh, th than I imagined. And so I, I kind of wish that I'd taken on a co-founder sooner, but I now am very happy to uh, to have a, a co-founder who joined a few months ago and uh, um, will not look back. Excellent. <laughs> yes, you need that moral support. It, it's, it's kind of interesting how people have different perspectives on that, about preferences for solo founders or, or teams of founders. Well, I, I mean, absolutely. The uh, the benefit is holding on to slightly more equity, but it, it, it was a painful first year, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Regardless of how well the startup goes, there's always those days where you wonder what the hell you're doing and you need somebody else to be saying, well, actually, remember? <laughs> well, in, in startup land, you have hours where you have major highs and lows, not just days. <laughs> so if anyone wants to find out more about Plan D, where should they go? PlanD.co. Nice and simple. Very simple web address. We'll post a link in the show notes, uh, as always. So, Rufus, I really wish you every success with this in you know, the secondary market, I think, needs something that works better. So if you can be part of that ecosystem, then more strength to you. So thank you very much for coming on and telling us more about what you're doing. Thank you so much. So we hope you enjoy that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.